Thank God today, and this is Pastor Adams, President and Founder of Truth Matters Ministries. In our goal, in our effort to ensure that we provide the body of Christ with information that will help them in understanding the grand design of soteriology or salvation and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, we want to spend a few moments today. We're going to talk about a very often misunderstood aspect of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the end time. And we're going to focus today on the beast and his mark. So today, we're going to loom towards the topic of the beast and the beast's mark with balance and gravity. And our intent and our goal is to present it with biblical precision. Uh, many popular views concerning the beast and the end time events will be explored and analyzed during this podcast. One of them is presented by Christian Research Institute President Hank Hanegraaff in his book, Apocalypse Code. Encapsulated in the Olivet Discourse, which was spoken by Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, I think it's important that we share today that here the disciples asked Jesus to share with them the truth of when he would come and what would be the sign of his coming and the destruction of Jerusalem. Within this chapter lies many keys to proper understanding of biblical prophecy. In verse 1 and 2, Jesus describes what will happen to Jerusalem's temple. In verse 3, when they arrive at the Mount of Olives, they ask, what is the sign of thy coming and the end of the age? Studying the terms end of age and the sign of thy coming are decisive to examine in light of scripture. So it's the task of the Bible teacher to consider carefully the laws of hermeneutics when interpreting the sacred scriptures. Hermeneutics involves all the principles listed um, in our exposition on hermeneutical principles and we have to look at them carefully in our effort to present what is called exegetical eschatology it's a term that's a, that derives from the word exegesis which simply means to lead out and then eschatology means the study of the end time now let's just return back to matthew 24 as we discuss the beast and his mark today and in Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse, many contemporary Bible teachers have interpreted Matthew 24 as Jesus Christ defining the literal events that will happen in the distant future when the Lord ends and when he ends this world. The consistent modern view is that it is speaking of a 21st century or beyond. Now, but when we say 21st century, we're not really suggesting here at Truth Matters specifically the 21st century since there has been so much confusion and conjecture and teachings about events that we're speaking about the third the fifth the 13th the 17th the 19th and the 20th centuries but we're going to look at the hermeneutical concept of historical principle and in the understanding of what is called metaphoric language to lead or bring out what jesus was saying to his audience remember this and don't forget it Everything in scripture is spoken for the benefit of all, but it is not spoken to all. Don't forget that. When Jesus explained what would occur at the end of the age, he was speaking of the Jewish spiritual and social era or age. The Greek word for age is aion. If the disciples were asking for a sign of the end of the world, they would have used the word cosmos. Jesus knew exactly what they were asking because he had pronounced judgment and destruction on their sacred temple and the city of Jerusalem. 
Now, when you examine verse 14 in the 24th chapter of Matthew, Christ told the audience present before him that they will see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel. Stand in the holy place. What holy place? The Jerusalem temple. Jesus goes on to explain in verse 29 that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give her light. He said stars will fall and heavenly bodies will be shaken. For the Bible teachers who point to Matthew 24 speaking of some distant future event that will occur in the 21st century or beyond, we here at Truth Matters must mention two vital things. What? In verse 34 and 35, Jesus qualifies all of his statements about wars, earthquakes, his coming in clouds, false Christ, great tribulation, pestilence, and persecutions occurring before that generation actually passed away. Don't forget that. So what are we to believe? Jesus or a host of modern apocalyptic teachers? Now, the term this generation occurs 14 times in the Gospels and always implies Jesus' contemporaries, those who were living with him. In Matthew 11:16, Jesus asked, to what can I compare this generation? Also look at Matthew 12, verse 41 through 45. Just as it is grammatically implausible for Jesus to have meant anything other than the generation to whom he was speaking in this context, so too it is grammatically impossible for him to have been referencing anything other than the generation present at his delivery of the Olivet Discourse as this means this, not that there. So this means this and not that over there or this here. Finally, on the certainty of this generation, meaning the current generation, listen to Jesus when announcing his seven woes preceding the Olivet Discourse. He warned the Pharisees and teachers of the law of the judgment for rejecting the Messiah. In Matthew 23 and 36, he said, all of this will come on this generation. See, many prophetic teachers who make millions of dollars with sensational predictions claim that Matthew 24 can't be anything other than a futuristic depiction since verse 30 states the Son of Man will be coming on clouds. The inference here is that there's, it's a reference to the future rapture, which certainly had not occurred. The second aspect of Jesus' Olivet Discourse is the concept of Christ's coming. Two-thirds of Revelations, or 404 verses, allude or reference Old Testament passages. Put a check mark there. We at Truth Matters find that throughout Christ's ministry, he more often than not referenced an Old Testament passage when he taught or fulfilled prophecy. See, this is consistent with his teaching in verse 30. Any student of scripture would have easily seen when Christ says, Ye shall see the Son of Man coming on clouds with glory and power was a reference to Ezekiel 30 and 3. I want you to look at these verses. Joel 2, verse 1 and 2, Isaiah 19 and 1, and Daniel 7 and 13. In these passages, coming on, coming in, or with clouds, meant with judgment and power. Since all other references to coming on clouds meant judgment, why would anyone think that the Son of Man coming on clouds means anything other than Christ announcing judgment on Jerusalem to the generation he was addressing then? Just let that sink in for a minute. I don't care what you've been told or what previous teachers have taught you. We have to 
stand on the truth because truth matters today. When Christ mentioned that along with his coming judgment of Jerusalem, those who witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem would also witness his vindication and his exaltation as kings, as Israel's rightful king. It is also true that with the destruction of the city and temple would come an end to the old covenant sacrifices that pointed toward the ultimate sacrificial lamb, who the symbols would be fully and completely satisfied in the substance of Jesus Christ. Bible scholar N.T. Wright explained, The disciples came to Jerusalem expecting Jesus to be enthroned as rightful king. This would necessarily involve Jesus taking over the authority which the temple symbolized. They were now confronted with the startling news that this taking over authority would mean the demolition, literal and metaphorical, of the temple whose demise Jesus had in fact predicted, and which he had already symbolically overthrown in his dramatic action in the temple itself. Now we're going to focus on the destruction of Jerusalem. When Jesus was addressing his contemporaries, he said in Matthew 24, 15 through 21, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place spoken by the prophet Daniel. Daniel prophesies in Daniel 11, 31 and 32 that his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and abolish the daily sacrifices. Then they will set up an abomination that causes desolation. When did this happen? Well, in 167 BC, Daniel's prophecy became an unforgettable reality when Syrian leader Antiochus Epiphanes took Jerusalem by force. What did he do? He abolished temple sacrifice and erected an abominable altar to Zeus and outlawed Sabbath observance. Therefore, when Jesus referenced the desolation spoken by Daniel, everyone in the audience knew exactly what he was talking about. The annual celebration of Hanukkah ensured that they would ever remember the Syrian Antichrist who desecrated the temple fortress. The pig's blood splattered on the altar in the name of the Greek god Zeus and the Holy of Holies. Had God not intervened through the agency of Joseph, Judas Maccabeus, the epicenter of their theological and sociological identity, would have been destroyed, not just desecrated. Now, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus took the Jewish nightmare and he expanded it to a cosmic proportions. What Jesus declared desolate was decimated by Roman infidels. They destroyed the temple fortress and ended daily sacrifices. The blood that flowed was not pig's blood, but it was blood from the corpus of unbelieving Pharisees. The Holy of Holies was not defiled, but it was totally destroyed by pillaging soldiers. There was no Judas Maccabees to intervene this time. Within a generation, the city and the temple was destroyed. True was the words of Jesus when he said in Matthew 24 and 2, not one stone will be left upon another. When the Jews saw the armies of Rome surrounding Jerusalem, they remembered what Jesus said and they fled to the surrounding mountains. The Jews who failed to heed Jesus' warning were slaughtered. Some one million fell by the sword. A million of others were taken prisoner. Jesus told the Jews in Jerusalem, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and the children will within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. One thing should be crystal clear. Christ was speaking to a first century audience and by using the pronoun you, and when he says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give her light, the stars will fall, 
fiery images of Old Testament prophets should flash before our eyes. Consider the images used by Isaiah when pronouncing judgment against Babylon in 593 BC. He said, see, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give her light. Isaiah 13, verse 9 and 10. Surely no one supposes that the stars went into a supernova in the days of Isaiah. Rather, as Isaiah used the sun, star, and moon as judgment metaphors against Babylon, so our Lord used them as judgment images or metaphors against Jerusalem. Wisdom, in, wisdom insists that we interpret the New Testament with the accompanying background music of the Old Testament. When we do not when we don't do that, then we will commit what is called <clears throat> isogesis, meaning that we will insert something into the text that the author did not originally intend. Now, I recall when I was in the military, many teachers, they would teach so many things. I remember uh, them teaching about the end times. And as we further construct the events surrounding Jerusalem's destruction, we must introduce historical truths about the beast that is spoken about in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13. So many teachers, they have so many ideas about a beast that's going to come in the 21st century and beyond, and that Satan is, is going to usher in a one world government in the war of Armageddon. But is it possible that just as so many have erred concerning the end of the world and the coming of Christ, could they have misidentified the biblical person of the beast? I remember so many taught me that Ronald Eugene Reagan was the beast since his name had sixes in each one of his names, Ronald Eugene Reagan. Others taught that the Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Gorbachev was the beast because he had a dark mark on his forehead. Truth Matters must declare a mark on your forehead symbolically means to serve. I want you to play close attention here and so it is to this day if you just think about a police or military or uniform the cap on a uniform has an engraved metallic mark that's etched on the forehead the terminology in your right hand symbolizes an oath or a vow or a commitment so when the bible speaks about a mark being on the forehead or in the right hand, it's talking about what is your commitment, your allegiance, what is your vow, and what are you committed to? You can read about that in Genesis 14, 22, Ezekiel 17, 18, Daniel 12 and 7. And so it is to this very day, an oath is performed with the right hand raised. Foreheads and hands, when mentioned together, they signify loyalty and obedience. It is as simple as today's idiom. I got a right hand man. Who can forget the chorus at the trial of Jesus Christ? The Jews cried, we have no king but Caesar. They reveal the mark or the loyalty of their forehead to the beast and the mark in their right hand by voting and signifying that they wanted Jesus crucified. 
Because of that loyalty, they integrated into the Roman system and abandoned their historical and their religious traditions. Just as today, you can't thrive as a nation financially, and yes, you are a member or integrated into the G8, the Council of Foreign Relations, the World Monetary Fund, or the World Bank, or have a favorite trading status partnership. Then, just as now, Rome, who was the world conqueror, controlled the world financial laws, policies, and currencies. Jesus was asked, do we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus said, whose image is on the coin? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. For 20 centuries, there has been speculation and conjecture and ignorance concerning the identity of the beast. Many thought that Alexander the Great Napoleon or Stalin or Hitler were the beasts. There have been Hollywood films released such as The Omen that sensationalized the myth that there was a human being who's going to have a literal 666 written on his forehead. There are so many people who taught me that the beast is going to be uh, revealed during a great seven-year tribulation period that's going to allow people to purchase goods and services. Many people even still teach that little chips are going to be placed under our skin and that translates to receiving the mark. Others have suggested that we're going to be forced to have a barcode in our head or hand along with a digital cryptocurrency that will dominate financial markets. But let's look at what scripture says and how the beast was used to destroy Jerusalem and persecute the infant church. The book of Revelation opens with a very important comments John wrote, and I want you to pay attention. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things that must shortly take place. Many who read Revelation, they approach it as if it's a record of events that's far in the future, such as the 21st century and beyond. But Revelation has more references to the Old Testament than any other book, totaling 184 references to things that were in the past. Revelation has been presented as a book that speaks of the future, but it speaks mostly about what will occur close to the time that God gave the revelation to John. The Encyclopedia Britannica records the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is solidly placed in the year 70 AD during the reign of Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus, better known for his number than his name. Just like their first century counterparts, 21st century believers can absolutely be certain that 666 is the number of Nero's name and that Nero is the beast that ravaged the bride in historical melee that includes three and a half years of persecution, a year when the Roman Empire almost became extinct. Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus. He was born December 15, 37 CE, and he died June 9, 68 CE. He became infamous for his personal debaucheries and extravagance and undoubtful evidence for his burning of Rome and persecutions of Christians. The great fire that ravaged Rome in 64 CE illustrates how low Nero's reputation had sunk by this time. Nero, in response to uh, the fire, tried to shift responsibility of the fire to Christians who were popularly thought to engage in many wicked practices. Hitherto, the government had not clearly distinguished Christians from Jews. Almost by accident, Nero initiated the latter or later Roman policy of half-hearted persecution of the Christians in the process of earning himself a reputation of being an antichrist in the Christian tradition. Now, we're going to enlarge upon those ideas 
of Nero's beastly antics and indulgences. But first we want to examine the number of the beasts. 666. Christian Research Institute President Hank Hanegraaff in his comments on Revelation 13, 13 states, First John identifies the beast as six of seven kings and identifies the number of his name. He informs his readers that seven-headed beast represents both kingdoms and kings of that kingdom. He further makes clear that with wisdom and insight, his first century readers can calculate the number of the beast, for it is a man's number. Obviously, no amount of wisdom would have enabled John's first century audience to calculate a number 21 centuries in the future. This confirms what Jesus declared in Matthew 24:14, that the beast abomination of desolation would be revealed to the generation he was speaking to in the first century. We at Truth Matters feel it is vital to inform our listening audience about gematria. What is that? Gematria is the practice of transforming names into numbers, which was a very common practice in antiquity. The first ten letters of the Greek alphabet corresponded to the numbers 1 through 10. The eleventh letter represented 20, the twelfth letter 30, and so on until you reach 100. The twentieth letter was 200, and each new letter after that added an additional 100 numbers. Now, Roman historian Suetonius identifies Nero by a numerical designation equal to a nefarious deed. This numerical equality is encapsulated in the phrase, a new calculation new. Nero, his mother, he slew. See, this clever cryptogram circulated during Nero's reign and reflected the widespread knowledge that Nero had indeed killed his mother, Agrippina. Another example of the use of gematria is seen in Matthew 1 verse 17. When Matthew retraces the lineage of Jesus, he, he concludes the genealogical account by explaining that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Many people didn't believe that Matthew uh, was really proficient and they thought he was an error, but contrary, they forgot that Matthew was a tax collector and accountant and he displayed mathematical genius by abridging the genealogies. What did he do? He skillfully employed gematria to organize the genealogy of Jesus into three groups of 14, the equivalent of the three Hebrew letters in King David's name. Wow! Thus, the genealogy simultaneously highlight the most significant names in the lineage of Jesus and artistically emphasize our Lord's identity as the long-awaited Messiah who would sit on the throne of David forever, praise God. This is the same type of precision and genius displayed by John's use of the 666. As we mentioned previously, Nero's transliteration from the Greek into Hebrew, Nun, Resh, Wa, Nun, Kuf, Ayin, Resh. The sum total of Nero, Caesar equals exactly 666. Let's go through it proceeding right to left. Nun equals 50. Resh equals 200. Wa equals 6. Nun equals 50. Kuof equals 100, Ayin equals 60, Resh equals 200, the total of 666. This is clearly the identification of the beast that John recorded in Revelation. 
I think it's important that we, as we talk about the beast, in November 60, AD 64, the persecution began in Rome. Dr. Paul Meyer, professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, provides gut-wrenching color commentary in a documentary novel entitled The Flames of Rome. Vast numbers of Christians were arrested, convicted, and sentenced to death. Tacitus records, covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed in flames and burnt to serve as nightly illuminations when daylight had expired. What do you mean by that, Pastor Adams? They took sharp pointed poles and they stuck them up the rectum of Christians and they went through their body and they put dolphin oil on them and they turned Christians into lamps. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle, and he wanted to have many Christians with dolphin oil on them burning in his garden and was exhibiting as a show like a circus in his yard. While he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer, Nero was so perverse that according to Apollonius of Tyana, Nero was a beast more evil than any that was encountered in the wild. Of beasts, it can't be said that they ate their own mother, but Nero gorged himself on the diet. He ate his mother. Nero so prostituted his own chastity that after defiling every part of his body, he devised a game in which he covered himself with the skin of wild animals and was let loose from a cage and attacked the private parts of men and women bound in stakes. He ate their genitalia. Nero castrated a young boy named Sporus and then married him in pomp and pageantry. Nero committed every perversion. He demanded to be called God Almighty and made it a law to be worshipped. This is the beast that Christ spoke of. This is the beast, the son of perdition that Paul wrote about in 2 Thessalonians 2, the first and second verse. John wrote in Revelation 13, a beast was coming out of the sea. John reveals in Revelation 17, 9 and 10 that the historical location of the looming apocalypse as a domain of the first century Roman Empire. Let's look at history. Let's not be ignorant, but let's grow up and look at history. What happened? It's not a 10 nation confederation known as the EEU. Rome is well known as a city of seven hills. Here's the seven hills. Capitolini. Palatine, Esquiline, Anventine, Kaolane, Veninal, and Quirinal. This is clear. John had the ancient Roman Empire in mind. Likewise, the seven kings are the seven Roman Caesars. The first five, Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caliglia, Claudius had fallen. Nero was presently on the throne and Galba seventh had not yet come. But when he did come, he only remained on the throne for seven months. John referred to him as reigning just for a little while. Nero was the very personification of evil. The malevolent state massacre of Christians he instituted continued unabated for three and a half years. In the end, Peter and Paul themselves were persecuted and put to death at the hand of the beast Nero. This was the only epic in human history where the beast could assail the foundation of the church, which was Christ, was the cornerstone. Only with Nero's death in June 9, AD 68, did the carnage against the bride finally cease. Not only is there a direct correlation between Nero and the number 666, but the Revelation 13, 5, 7, when it says the beast was given 42 months to make 
make war against the saints. This is the exact time period that Nero wrecked havoc on the bride. It is no mere, no mere coincidence that within a year of Nero's suicide, the Roman Empire suffered a near fatal wound. In a moment, an empire that had resided in the Julio-Claudinian line of Roman Caesars for a century disappeared from the face of the earth. History records in AD 69 would yield four different emperors, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian. Nero's death not only brought an end to the dynasty, but near extinction of the imperial Rome. Civil war raged. Four emperors perished by the sword. Cities and its riches, plains were swallowed up. Rome was wasted by conflagrations. Rome's oldest temple was consumed, sacrificed as a result of all of the tribulations. By it's so important for us to remember in our listening audience today. We are admonished to keep our focus on letting our light shine, sharing the message that Messiah has atoned for our sins and given us power over all the power of the wicked one. He has changed us to make to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world and to make disciples of all men. We are commanded to look for the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We are told to prepare ourselves and to take oil in our lamps for the bridegroom is going to have an angel blow the trumpet and we will execute resurrection for those who have died in Christ first. Then which we who are alive we're going to meet him in the air eternally god bless you